All right. Well, good morning. All right. Well, we're continuing Acts chapter 2. Um, we looked at, first of all, the actual event of Acts, where most of you are familiar, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the, uh, the brethren, the disciples. Um, where exactly, we're not sure, but uh, we know they had gathered in an upper room. There was a number of them. So that event is recorded, and the people are amazed and wondering. Of course, in a big crowd, you'll have all kind of responses. So some were saying, ah, these people are just been, you know, drinking a few too many <clears throat> bottles of Boone's Farm apple wine or something, and uh, they're just sort of acting a little drunk. And Peter comes in and starts to expound in chapter 2, 14 through 21. Nope, this is, this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And he <clears throat> quotes Prophet Joel, and uh, in the Prophet Joel, it's just sort of an amazing prophecy from a little book like that. You wouldn't think you would get so much clarity or simplicity. But Joel basically gives us an outline. God speaks in Joel and gives us an outline of the fulfillment era of the history of redemption, the whole era from beginning to end. In Joel, we read of a Holy Spirit being poured out after Jesus has died and risen again, as we will see even more clearly at the end of Peter's message. And the Holy Spirit comes and uh, brings the new age, the new age of the Spirit, the reign of Christ, the grace of God to all nations, and introduces an era where people everywhere, anywhere of all ages, all stamps, colors, whatever, uh, every variation of human being that we could ever think of are calling upon the name of the Lord. And this era, this era ends in the day of the Lord, begins with the Spirit, continues with calling on the name of the Lord, and ends, concludes with the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord, in, in the words of Jesus, brings the new heavens and the new earth. And over all of this is the terminology last days. So when we think of last days or we think of New Testament eschatology, we should think bigger than just the second coming. There's far more to it than the second coming. There is a second coming, but uh, the eschaton, the day of the Lord, the last days, that, that's bigger than that. Well, after Peter finishes uh, quoting Joel and explaining to them, he brings an indictment against the, his hearers, Acts 2, 22 and 23. Peter switches from Joel to Jesus of Nazareth and asserts his credentials. Pretty important statements. He's a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. God wrought through Jesus irrefutable and undeniable miracles and signs in their midst. And what's interesting is today you'll get a whole crowd of people, most people who are at this point heirs of a whole lot of philosophical uh, baggage, but one of them is going to be the Enlightenment. And they'll say, well, miracles aren't possible. Therefore, when they open the Bible, they'll just say, oh, those aren't real miracles. They don't say it because they have any historical evidence or any compelling evidence. They just say it because that's their opinion. But that wasn't the opinion of the people who Peter was speaking to. And just remember that. The people he spoke to didn't object. They didn't say, oh, we didn't see his miracles, or ah, they were just you know, magician tricks. They didn't say those things. They knew, they were cut to the heart. They knew God had approved his son in their midst. And the Gospels are the only reliable, permanent record of this divine attestation and endorsement of Jesus by God from heaven. And uh, so these miracles are, are more than just, oh, he performed a miracle. They were the signs that he was the Messiah and son of God. Peter continues in Acts 2.23 and says, This Jesus you nailed to a cross, you put him to death. He's speaking this to his whole audience. God had done everything necessary to endorse Jesus as a Messiah and Son of God. But he says, but you, you being fully aware of this approval, you participated in his death. So no surprise at the fickleness of the crowds all the cancel stuff going on today, no surprise. It's been going on in human history since the beginning. It's just the nature of human beings. Sin. Sin is bad and dark. 
And he says, you delivered him over. Jesus was delivered over into the hands of godless or lawless men. Lawless meaning really Gentiles. Um, the Gentiles weren't godless. They believed in a bunch of gods, but they were void of the true God. And so as a nation occupied by the Roman, Roman authorities, they were not allowed to crucify anybody themselves, so they had to go to Pilate to get that done. And this they did. And so there's Jesus the, through this series of steps that you can trace in the Gospels being delivered over. First Judas delivers him to the temple guards and the temple guards to the chief priests and the chief priests to Pilate and finally Pilate to the soldiers and Jesus is crucified. And every step of this delivering over you can see recorded in the Gospels <clears throat> the leaders of Israel, the Jewish leaders primarily, are plotting and planning and, and deliberating on how to take Jesus, destroy Jesus, kill Jesus. Those are the terms you will read. Not a nice crowd. But Peter wants the audience to know something. He wants us to know something. He wants every human being in the world to know something. While Human planning and human purpose was engaged in every step of this action of delivering the Son of God over to be crucified. Peter makes clear that there were other dynamics in play. It was God who ultimately directed this whole process for his own eternal purposes. 2.23, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Human responsibility, clearly in view, clearly evident, and yet there is this overriding dynamic of divine purpose and sovereignty. And you wonder, well, you know, why is this in the first message of Pentecost? Wouldn't you think Peter would be a little bit more evangelistic? Well, Peter was talking to a crowd who knew the Bible, and he wanted them to understand the message of that Bible. That our salvation never could be, never was, and never will be in the hands, ultimately in the hands of human planning or endeavor. Not ever. We need to know this. We're supposed to know this. This is part of our faith. And so when challenges come along to challenge that perspective, don't think that it's an extracurricular issue. It's not. It's at the heart of things. So we looked first last week at uh, this divine intervention. It has sort of three components in the passage before us. First of all, there's the plan and purpose of God. So this word that's used, baleo bulamai, it's a word meaning plan, but it's, a, it's more than just plan. It's a plan that has several aspects to it. The first aspect of this plan is sort of the action aspect when it's a verb and it's the action of thinking, of considering, of deliberating, of formulating, of taking counsel. It's the process of planning. And then the process of planning hopefully ends up, in this case, a bad, a bad outcome, but this planning process should end up in a decision, a resolution, a purpose, a plan. So you can plan as a verb, and you can have a plan and come to a plan or conclusion as a noun. And last week we looked at an overview of Ephesians 1 through 3 and saw that, you know, just all over the place in Ephesians 1 through 3, we read that our salvation is based on divine plan and purpose. It's just stamped everywhere. We saw that it's not just simply a plan, but it's a determined plan. I don't, you might say, well, the word is predetermined, Steve, up on your screen, Acts 2.23. It's like, no, I don't know where they got pre from. I've still scratched my head on that. All, none of the other translations, as I remember anyway, had pre, I think, in there. It's just a determined plan. It's a purposed plan. It's a plan that's God's idea, God's design, God's purpose. And his purpose and sovereignty was operative at every point, in every detail of the deliverance of Jesus 
over to the hands of the wicked men who ultimately crucified him. Every step of the way, God was there, God was involved. There is no activity in the history of redemption. Parting of the Red Sea would be an activity in the history of redemption. All the things that went on of David being, becoming crowned king, this activity of God, all those high points in the, in the history of redemption. There is no activity in the history of redemption where God was more focused, engaged, determined, or sovereign. I always remember that. Jesus was not the victim of <clears throat> politics. The Father and the Son conspired together. Men conspired together, but the Father and the Son from all eternity conspired together to bring this to pass. We look at Ephesians, and in those, there's this one statement, in him we've obtained an inheritance, in Ephesians 1.11, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And this passage is just one of those places that sort of captures the essence of things. So when we're reading in, back there in Acts 2.23, the determined plan and foreknowledge of God, it's said another way, God works all things after the counsel of his own will in the midst of salvation from election to eternity. Eternity to eternity. God was involved sovereignly and he's doing all things after his own counsel, his own deliberation. We look at a few places in the, in the Bible where it says Jesus, people try to come and seize him. John 7, 30, an example, no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour hadn't yet come. God was sovereign. And then in John 13, 1 and 17, 1, John, this whole passage, this section of Jesus just pouring out his, hearts to, his heart to his disciples before, before he leaves. Um, it begins and ends with knowing that his hour had come. They couldn't take him until his hour was come. We have the clear statement, no one has taken my life from me, John 10, 17 and 18, but I lay it down on my own initiative. In John 19, Pilate saying, hey, I, you know, I have the authority to crucify, and Jesus said, you have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Just remember these things, because there's brethren right now all over the world who are suffering for the gospel, and I can imagine, I heard of two pastors who had been not really arrested, just sort of taken into custody, never charged with anything, and they're still in prison 19 years. And you wonder, over those 19 years, they ever start thinking maybe there's a mistake been made? Maybe, Lord, you aren't sovereign after all. This is, this is just squeezing me to death. If you think you have your ups and downs, I'm betting they do too. That's why you should always be praying for them. We don't know them by name all the saints that are in these predicaments. But pray for them always. And you may be in this predicament one day yourself. And remember, God is sovereign in every step of your life. Well, foreknowledge. Actually, I'd hoped to sort of do the whole thing last week, but that didn't happen. So this morning, we'll look at foreknowledge delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Well, Father, we come to your throne and with the psalmist we say, surely God is good to Israel. Lord, you give us all things. Um, Lord Jesus, you have come and you've given us your redemption, your salvation. You've given us the forgiveness that you bought with your blood. And you're glad to give it. You extend it to us freely. Um, Heavenly Father, you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Again, you just set your love upon us, your whole heart on us. And you did it freely, knowing what would happen, knowing everything that would transpire. And you chose us. And you sent your Holy Spirit into our lives. Lord, what a blessing, the blessing of your own spirit within us. In that mystic union, that great mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, we are in union with you through your spirit. And Lord, he is our life, and he takes the things of Jesus and shows them unto us, and he sheds abroad in our heart your love, and he works in us that fruit of the spirit, faith, hope, joy, long-suffering, 
the character that you want all of your children to have. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. Now this morning we look at a topic that's been debated for centuries in the church. And Lord, we, we, don't, we don't want to be confused by those debates. We just want clarity. And so this morning, just ask that you would help us to appreciate your word, to appreciate the terminology that you use in your word, to trust your word and your word alone, to trust your terminology. That's the only way we can stay safe and avoid falling into this pit or that pit. And uh, Lord, just fill our hearts with this sense of your foreknowledge. It's real. It's in you. And you speak of it often in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus was delivered over not just simply by a plan, but by a determined plan. But it's not just simply by a determined plan, but also the foreknowledge of God. So what does that word mean? Foreknowledge. We probably think we, we understand it at first. It's kind of like anything. You think you understand it until you start looking at it and you go, well, maybe I didn't understand it after all. Maybe I just assumed some things. Maybe I had some just general perspective. And so we want to look at this term because there is some confusion about this term. I'm sure there's confusion here among some about this term. Because if you haven't thought really about it, if you haven't studied it, you're most likely not going to be in for a treat or a surprise, whichever it is to you today. The term foreknowledge, folks tend to give it a theologized definition. Because where do you usually hear about the foreknowledge of God? Usually when you're talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, sovereign grace, or if you want to use that unfortunate term Calvinism, go ahead. But um, It's about the grace of God and, and people are trying to figure out, well, how did God choose me? There's election, and then there's debates about election, and when people say, well, election is this and election is that, usually foreknowledge is what is used as a term to adjust the doctrine of election in the Bible. So what is it? Well, again, when folks start talking about it, they start to get philosophical. They start talking about middle knowledge and absolute knowledge and what does God, knowledge does God have and free will and all these things. And all of a sudden, when you just ask a simple question, what is foreknowledge? And then you're just in this mess, mess of discussion. Well, let's try to sort the mess out a little. People think that God, some people think, and it's sort of what they portray, whether they articulate it or not, that God knows about the future. And there's a sense in which God does know about the future. And they call that foreknowledge. And so when they start talking about election, which for some is uncomfortable, which I can understand why, because it was for me for months and months before the Lord opened my heart. But on the other hand, I can't understand why it's uncomfortable, because it's just such an awesome truth when God fills your heart that he loves you and loved you forever. Oops. Okay. We're back. But then someone comes along and says, yeah, but that election was based on foreknowledge. And in that sense, they say God looked ahead into eternity because he saw all the things that, that human beings would do, every human being, all the things that, that human choices of every human being, and he went and saw the people that would choose him, and he chose them to be saved. So election is not a choice of individuals. Election is a choice of those who choose God, which, gosh, doesn't really fit the terminology of election in the Bible itself. But again, it comes from this idea that God sort of has a bigger crystal ball than everybody else, and his crystal ball is accurate, whereas everybody else is kind of fuzzy and, and minimized. And that's just not true. I don't know of anywhere in the scripture that God says, I know the future because I have a bigger crystal ball or anything like that. What you always read in the scriptures is that God knows the future because he creates the future. And that distinction is massive. So if you've struggled with the sovereignty of God really in anything, human responsibility, God's sovereignty, just understand that God creates the future. 
God runs the future. God determines the future. We can see this in Isaiah chapter 46, 10 through 13. Now there's a larger context here of Isaiah, you know, really 40 through 46, 47 here. God has in previous chapters introduced Cyrus of Persia. At this time, this is seven, you know, roughly 720 B.C., I'd say. And the Babylonians really haven't fully come on the scene yet. But in about 20 years, 30 years, the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. It's going to happen in increments. But he, and they're going to take most of the Israelites captive out into Babylon and then distributed from there. But God is going to raise up this king, Cyrus, king of Persia, to defeat the Babylonians. And as the Persian Empire moves on with Darius and Xerxes, they are going to set the Israelites free and send them back to Jerusalem. So that's part of what Isaiah is about. And the challenge of reading Isaiah is when is Isaiah talking about this near restoration? And when is Isaiah talking about a horizon of salvation that is beyond that? The last days, if you will. The coming of Messiah. And because those two sort of get mixed together, people tend to have different opinions of things. But in this passage, the context has been Cyrus. God is going to use Cyrus to destroy Babylon, restore Israel, ultimately. There's a more distant horizon in view if you look at the last verse on the screen. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay and I will grant salvation to Zion and my glory for Israel. There's a righteousness coming, a Romans 3 righteousness. This righteousness is elaborated in Isaiah 51 through 55 and I cannot emphasize enough that Isaiah 51 through 55, read that. That is a unit in itself, and it begins with Adam and Eve, and it ends uh, with the Davidic covenant, and all the covenants in the Bible are there. You can read every one. You'll find every one in there. And, of course, the great passage, Isaiah 53, where the Son of God gives himself, establishes a new covenant, and the pleasure of the Lord is in his hand. And I use that word because in Ephesians 1.11 or thereabouts, it talks about God works everything according to his good pleasure. And that terminology that Paul uses, good pleasure, isn't something Paul just picked out of the air. It comes from Isaiah. It comes from this passage. It comes from Isaiah 53. These are important passages. God, first of all, asserts against the backdrop of Israel's sin and idolatry. 46.10, for I am God, and there is no other. Some of us are going to pay a price for saying that. It's going to happen sooner or later. That's where the trajectory of this whole world is going. No one's going to stop it. We might be able to prevent it with an election or two. But my brothers and sisters, mark it down. We're here to suffer for the Lord. That's it. As, as Americans, we tend to think, no, we're here to think theology for the Lord. Like, no, we're not. It's part of it. But in the end, we're here to bear witness for the Lord. And the first witness that we have to tell the world is that there is a God. And that there is no other God. There's one, he's unique, and there's no other. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like him. Chris's prayers usually sooner or later, every other week get around to this, there's no one like you. There's no one like God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name because there is no one like you. 
Well, here in this passage, the likeness, God says, this is what it's like to be. No one's like me because why? Because I declare the end from the beginning. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't go, yeah, all the free will of men. I mean, the Bible just doesn't talk about free will. Do you all know that? You all aware of that? The Bible just doesn't discuss free will. It discusses the bondage of the will in a whole lot of places. It doesn't discuss free will. That's a philosophical discussion. And if you get in that, trying to say God is sovereign, you know, because he has to be, because if he's not sovereign, you're cooked because you don't have a free will. You're in bondage to sin. And unless God sovereignly breaks that bondage with his power and grace, you're stuck in that rut, and that's where you'll stay in all eternity. We have to understand that. Sovereign grace It's not extra credit ideas. Sovereign grace is at the heart of grace. It's the very nature of grace because that's what we as human beings need. I'm not sick in sin. I was dead in sin. And I've always kind of said, go out and get get a bag of money and go downtown and shake it and you'll get mauled, right? Take that bag of money and just go out to a cemetery and shake it. How many people are going to get out of their graves? They won't. Why? Because they're dead. And you put God and salvation and Jesus Christ in front of sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins. They won't come to Christ. They may see the logic of what you're going to say, what you're telling them, but they don't see God. Only grace can open hearts. God declares the end from the beginning. No free will here, no crystal balls here, but just the sovereign purpose and declaration of the God who is, there's no other, and there's no one like him, and this is what he is like. So if someone starts saying, well, God isn't like this, and you go, well, then what God are you going to go to? Because Isaiah says, this is the only God, and here's what he's like. There are no other gods. He's the God who is sovereign. He's the God who runs his universe. He's the God who must control everything in his universe. Now, as a guy, I'd think, well, you know, I'm going to get 10 kids together, two, three, four-year-olds. I'm going to sit them down and explain to them that they need to be nice to each other. They need to sit in these chairs and do their coloring books, and I'll be back in a half an hour, and you all mind. That would work, right? No. Here's God. He says, okay, universe, you just, you know, do what you need to do. I'm stepping out for a while, and I'm going to, you know, just suspend my sovereignty for a while. Do you think God's going to do that? God is not the author of sin, but God will not let sin go its own way. God will always control sin, and that is what it's about with Pharaoh. The scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it also says as many times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Fifteen times God hardened his heart. And multiple times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And every now and then, in that section about Pharaoh, that sort of contest between Pharaoh and God, you'll see Pharaoh sort of deliberating, and his advisors would come in and tell him things that would harden his heart. You see, there's all kinds of means that hearts are hardened. It's not God taking an innocent person and hardening their heart. It's God taking wicked people who are determined to do evil in this world and directing them for God's own purposes. They wanted to kill Jesus halfway through his ministry. Not going to happen. Their wickedness was reaching out to destroy the Son of God. But his time was not yet. God controlling history. God says he declares the, begin, the end from the beginning. 
And from ancient times, things which have not been done, God's prophecies, we, we start thinking of how small and short our life is because you usually have to count your life not from when you were born, but from when you actually started paying attention and could really figure out what the world was about. When you were about 20, 25, and then you get the rest of your life uh, to fix all the dumb things that you did earlier in life. But God speaks over centuries and millennia. From ancient times, the things which have not been done, he's declaring. And he's declaring with a reason. He's going to control his universe because he has a purpose. The reason I control things, the reason I manage things the way I do, God says, the reason I am the great Elohim, the reason I am the Lord is because my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1. God is running his universe for his own purposes. And as human beings, we tend to, what, be selfish and try to run our little portion of the universe according to our purposes, right? Keep doing that and you'll end up in that place where you will never see and never know God's purposes. You will end up in that state where for the rest of your eternal existence you will not know God. Keep denying God. Keep pushing God aside. Keep trading in God's purposes for your own self-willed purposes and that's where you, where you will end up. There's people that you talk to, sometimes just in casual conversation, and they give you their worldview, their opinion of God, and you're just in utter shock. They say there is no God, and they don't want God, and God's this and God's that. And when they come to the day of judgment, God will say, okay, you didn't want me. I'm going to give you what you wanted, an existence without me. And the awfulness of that cannot be described. God is working his purposes. They will be established. He is absolutely sovereign over sparrows, over hairs of your head. And he's going to accomplish his good pleasure. It's his universe. He made it. He gives us all life and breath. He gets to do this. God's not a socialist. He believes in private property. The universe belongs to him, not you. God goes on, I left a few passages out because they were more specific to the context and weren't really helpful, didn't fit on the page. God goes on, truly, I have spoken, and truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, and surely, I will do it. Does this look like a crystal ball to you? Or does it look like a sovereign God? who is running the entire universe for his good pleasure. But here's his plan when we say, well, what's your plan? He's not mean. He's not here to just, you know, beat people up or do this or that. His purpose is to save people from sin. Now we could get all philosophical about, well, where did sin come from, all that? Like, just keep on going. Again, I just remind you, there's two ways to become a heretic. You can either say that the Bible doesn't have some of these difficulties, these sort of tensions and challenges with each other, or you can try to solve them. Either way, you'll, you're not going to get anywhere. Some of these tensions are going to never be resolved until the day of the Lord and maybe never be resolved at all. It might take an infinite God to ultimately resolve those, and we are not infinite. But we're going to know more about it, and God has his purposes. But the reality is, is every one of us are sinners. And when we're in a world where everybody's a sinner, then God bringing his righteousness to pass, a righteousness that you get 
given to you by faith. You do not have to earn it because you can't. Try all your life, you'll never, you'll never measure up. A righteousness that is a gift, a righteousness purchased by the agony of the Son of God. A righteousness that is based in justice, sin paid for. Sin adjudicated. That's God's purpose. I bring near my righteousness. That is my purpose. I've spoken it, and I'm going to bring it to pass. I'm planned it, and I will do it. It's called the last days, my brethren, and we're in it. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. When the fullness of time was come, it didn't delay. It happened. If you're getting your house remodeled, you're sitting around going, is the thing ever going to get remodeled? Are they ever going to get finished? Am I ever not going to wake up at 8 a.m. to have to let people in the house? Am I ever going to have to say, well, what about this? Am I ever going to have to do that? And then the day comes when they don't come anymore because it's done. The fullness of your remodeling has come. And you get to live in your house. For the most part. A few people come knocking afterwards, but it's great. But when God finally came, when that fullness of time came and all of human history was said and all of prophecy had been stated and the world had waited to recognize that it's going to be on God's timetable, not the world's timetable, his salvation came without delay, Jesus Christ, and in three years of ministry and a cross and a resurrection and an exaltation accomplished the eternal redemption of God. I will grant salvation to Zion and my glory for Israel. And this encompasses both Jew and Gentile, the true Israel, the new Israel of God that is spoken of all over the New Testament. So when we are in our passage and we're looking at things like predetermined plan and foreknowledge, this is where we are. And God wants us to know it. If people read Isaiah back in 720 B.C., they knew it. If the Holy Spirit was in their hearts and they had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, how they had it, how it's different from ours, we've been discussing that for weeks now. But these men spoke by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was in them when they wrote these things. And people who knew God in the Old Testament they knew ultimately what these things meant. They didn't have the sense of it like we do. They don't, didn't have the details of it. They weren't looking backwards. They were looking forwards, but they had the Holy Spirit burning in them. God is going to grant his salvation to Zion and his glory to Israel. The terminology of that day for the people of God. The new covenant comes and expands the people of God to all nations. And hence, as it says in Hebrews, we are come unto Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So here's Isaiah. Here's one of those special places in the Old Testament where there's just this intense space of talking about the majesty of God and the greatness of God and his purposes. We often call them promises, and some are, but here it's purpose. This is what I'm going to do. Sure, it's a promise, but it's a purpose, and God's going to bring it to pass. Now our word foreknowledge. I promise we talk about foreknowledge, so here we are. Before we can do foreknowledge, we sort of have to go, well, what does knowledge mean, first of all? Knowledge occurs like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. So you could basically throw a dart on any page and you might, you're going to be near the word know or knowledge. And like our sense of the word know, we use it in many different ways, and so it is with the linguistics of the Old Testament and the New, the Hebrew and the Greek. You have a root word that has a root meaning, but many meanings sort of start to spring up from it and grow from it. To know something, we're just going to look at know right now, not foreknowledge, but just knowledge to know. To know something 
because it's a verb and a noun. To know something is to comprehend, to understand a thing, an event, or an idea. I, I know something. One plus one is two. I know this. Also, to know someone or something is to be acquainted with a person. I know Gwen. I know Larry. To be acquainted with a person. It's also to have regard for a person. I really know this person, and it's, you can say it with a sense of regard. And then there's this use of the word know, which means, which is really somewhat foreign to the English usage, but it means to choose out of a group with special recognition or regard. And so when folks think of foreknowledge, they don't have that idea of choice in their minds because that's not really an English choice. So they're thinking in terms of English definitions. Whereas the scripture in the Old Testament, particular sort of the Hebrew mindset about knowing someone or something, it can take on the sense of choice, of recognition, of special regard. Now in Genesis 3.8, we can read, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So here's this word, this verb, knowing. And it has the sense of acquired knowledge, acquired understanding, in this case about moral alignment. It wasn't knowledge they basically, you know, wanted to know after they knew it, TMI type of thing. Too much information for them. And it brought the whole human race into sin and death. So here's this just standard general usage of the word to know something, to comprehend something. Genesis 15, 8, God is speaking with Abraham and God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now, this is not terminology of just knowing something, right? This has the sense of how can I be confident that I'm going to possess it? No means confidence and certainty regarding this matter. An astounding promise to a man who had no child. Your seed's going to be as the stars of the heavens, and I'm going to give you this land that you're in as far as you can see. How will I know it? In Genesis 18:19, we have a usage of this same Hebrew verb, and as it's translated in the 70, the Greek verb, which is behind, you know, Acts 20. Or Acts 2.23. God is reasoning with himself. Here's one of those places where God takes counsel with himself. And he wants us to know this. I think it's kind of interesting. God's basically talking to himself here. He's in his shower, whatever that is. And he's saying to himself, uh, there's this context of the three men representing, representing Father, Son, and Spirit, representing the Lord. They're about to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God reasons with himself, hey, I've chosen Abraham. Before that, he said, should I tell him what I'm going to do? And he says, well, I've chosen him. So that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that he may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Righteousness and justice at the heart of God talking to himself. He's chosen Abraham for a great purpose, and it's only fitting that he should confide in Abe. So then he starts that great narrative of, okay, Abraham, now that you know what I'm going to do, and then Abraham's like, I'm going to dicker with God. I'm going to whittle God down. Just an incredible passage about prayer and about watching and about persistence with the Lord. Whittle God down in the good things. Now here are your translators, and I have it sort of marked there, for I have chosen him. Well, the word there is no. Same word used every place else for no. And it's interesting that the translators of the New American Standard have said, well, in this case, the only English word that captures the Hebrew essence is chosen, the word choice. So this thing that we don't really see in our English list of sort of nuances of the word, but it's a significant nuance 
in the Hebrew, in the Greek, and just in the whole mindset of God's purposes. I have known him. Amos is another place where we see this. Again, we're just trying to get to understand how the Bible uses the word no. Then we'll get to for no. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, Amos 3, 1 and 2. Against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And as you see it highlighted there, it means, you can guess it, the word is simply no. You only have I known of all the children of the earth. If you want a good translation for that, take up the ASV. I just recommend that on the side. But God is speaking through Amos. He's exposing in the context the sins and idolatries of the people of Israel. They are a special people that he brought out of Egypt. He he just mentions that, hey, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. God chose them. God chose Abraham, and God chose his seed, and God chose that whole nation and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Choice is everywhere. Everywhere in the Old Testament surrounding it. You're just one of those places. I chose you. You should have figured out that you have a special place in the history of redemption and you should have lived up to it and you didn't. And he says, I chose you out of the whole family. God could have chosen some other people, but he didn't. He chose them. So this choice, this knowing is a regard for someone in a special way. He regarded Israel and knew Israel and chose Israel in a special way from among the nations. Read that in Exodus 19. It's very clear. You only have I known. Because they have not lived up to their privilege. They have not lived up to the opportunity they had. God says, I'm going to punish you. So just because you're chosen doesn't mean you can live like you want. If someone thinks that, they need to pick up the book of Amos and get serious with God. So here's this foreknowledge. We get back to this term foreknowledge. We can sort of see what knowledge means, and you probably know where I'm going with this. Let's consider the term that we have in our passage, foreknowledge, and its simple view of it is this. It's, it's the dimensions of knowledge, all the biblical dimensions of knowledge, with a sense of priorness or previousness. There is knowledge of of ideas, knowledge of people, knowledge of choice that is now done before something, prior to. That's all it is, foreknowledge. But what's really interesting is while there are, gosh, just hundreds and hundreds, I think 1,400, 1,500 occurrences of know or knowledge in the Bible, there are only seven occurrences of foreknowledge. And the way some folks are so confident that, you know, well, election is according to foreknowledge, meaning this, this, and this, you'd think sometimes that they think that the Bible's full of that definition. And it's like, it only occurs seven times. So it's real easy for us, which we will do, you know, quickly go through and see, well, what does foreknowledge mean in God's word? Not in an English dictionary or in the general opinion of that's floating around. Seven passages. Here's one of them that we're looking at. So foreknowledge can mean to have in mind beforehand. The word to know just simply means to have in your mind, to have in your thinking, in your perspective. It's exclusive to the New Testament. It's a noun twice and a verb five times. Foreknowledge, gnosis is knowledge, prognosis is foreknowledge, and we have what in our medical terminology, prognosis, right? Well, it's lifted right out of, just takes this word and anglicizes it, prognosis, gives it a definition. To give something beforehand, to give you some knowledge about your disease or your fix for your disease beforehand. How's it going to go, doc? In general, it means prior knowledge, and there's two passages that just mean you know something beforehand. There are three passages in which it means to choose, as we've seen in the Old Testament, to regard with a distinguish, 
distinguishing consideration, love. And then there's two places, Acts 22, 3 here, where it's used of purpose. To have something in mind as part of a long-standing plan. And those are the five usages. So usage number one is in Acts 2, 4, 26, sorry, 4 and 5. This is prognosis or foreknowledge. And here is Paul. He's giving his defense and his testimony before King Agrippa. He says, so then all the Jews who were accusing him, all these Jews accusing me, know my manner of life from my youth up. I lived among them. They knew of me, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me or knowing this beforehand, as prognosis, knowing this beforehand about me for a long time, they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee. So Paul says they need to come up with some prior knowledge that they knew about me. It's kind of a really interesting use of the word. But it's just a simple statement they've known about me in just a general context, no special theological meaning. 2 Peter 3, 17, Peter was presented, has been presenting the second coming of the Lord, which brings the day of judgment. Very interesting. If you've been looking into the second coming, you've been wondering, okay, how do I piece this together? Read 2 Peter 3, 17. Real simple. Jesus comes, brings the day of judgment. Earth melts with fervent heat. Um, not hard to get that confused, unless, of course, you want to read something into it. Don't read things into passages. Never helpful. If there's another passage that you know, gives you some details that you like, great, but you won't find it in 2 Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing that there's a day of judgment, knowing that the whole world that we know, that we can see, is going to melt with fervent heat, knowing that there's this day when you will stand before God and give an account of your life, prognosing this, for knowing this, or as the translators say, knowing this beforehand, be on your guards that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So here's just a simple use of the word of just to know something beforehand. No theological significance to it. It's just a normal usage of the word. Now we start to get to those passages where there's some special use it takes on the Old Testament significance of choose, Romans 8.29. And we know, there's a use of the word just know, not foreknow, but know. We have something in our minds that we understand. We understand, we know, that God causes all things to work together for good. That's what we just read in Isaiah, isn't it? Working everything together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So in this passage, there are some things that sort of plainly emerge. It's, I've got highlighted there those whom he foreknew, and let's just sort of look at a few things about it. First of all, again, God causes all things to work together for good. There's God's sovereignty is in the passage. It sort of frames the passage. Um, God is sovereign in all the affairs of human history, but he's especially sovereign here in salvation. This is about salvation. God causes all things to work together for good. How he does that is his own mystery, but he does do it. And this good, he works all things together for good. This good has to, go with, has to do with an eternal purpose in salvation. He works things together for good according to his purpose. And all of us learn that in our lives. You know, there's just times when God is trying to get at something in our life. We don't really know what it is, so we think it's this, we think it's that. We got a sneaking suspicion it might be this, but you really don't want to deal with that. So you keep saying, oh, it's out here. God's just being mean to me, right? The usual. You got kids, what are they going to do when you discipline them? You're just being mean to me. So, you know, God has to deal with it too. If you think you have to deal with it with your own few little kids, you should be God who has to deal with it with 8 billion people. How many mean, you're being mean to me as I hear, hear every day. So God works things together for good in our life for his purpose. And his purpose was what? Salvation. He works things together for good for a purpose 
to have his own family. Ephesians 3, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God wants a family, big family. And he's not leaving anybody at church. He's not leaving anybody at the mall. We're all going to make it. He wants his whole family. Just remember those parables of Jesus. The woman couldn't abide that she lost one out of 100 coins. She was not going to be satisfied with 99. God will not be satisfied until he has all his children, all of them. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be holy, as it says in Ephesians. To be like Jesus in every way that a finite human being can be. This is his purpose. God doesn't predestine people. He predestines people to be holy. So we sort that in language. They think, I've been predestined. No, you've been chosen. He chose you and then predestinated, predestined you to be holy. Predestination is about what he chose you for. Many brethren. So there's the eternal purpose of salvation. Also around this passage, notice that the focus is on people, not what he knows about them. To those who, to those who, for those whom, the focus is on people. So here, this foreknowing is about people, not about their actions. Well, someone might say, well, it says those who love God. We'll get to that in a minute. You don't love God until God calls you and gives you grace to it. Called according to purpose for those whom. And God has a special regard for these who are in this passage. He calls them to himself in Christ. Calls. Calling. Just not an invitation. Calling is God working in power to draw a person infallibly to himself. Everybody will resist the grace of God. Everybody. I did, you did, everybody does. But when God comes with saving grace, he overcomes that innate human sinful resistance, gives new birth, gives new life. And we start saying, Abba, Father. Calls them to himself. He foreknows them. He foreknew. And then he predestines them to become part of his family. Do you want to be part of God's family? Are you glad to be part of God's family? Are you glad to be part of God's family with Steve Cowden in it? With Gwen, with Wynn. So you've got to take the family God gives you. Just remember that, okay? I always like to say, there's a cost to doing business with people. Part of his family. He foreknew you. He chose you for those whom he chose. He predestined. God chooses people for those whom... He regards them with distinction, with love, with recognition. And love and affection are always in the picture. Always. And you can read the rest of the passage. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. So this is the logical order of things, if you want an order. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. The people who start in foreknowledge end up in glory. That's our confidence. So if you're having a bad day day or a bad week or even a bad year, but you know you're in Christ and you want to be in Christ, you want to be part of his family, then here's your confidence. God always finishes what he begins. Well, Romans 11, 12 is another place where we have this, the people whom he foreknew. Pretty obvious what it means. God hasn't rejected all of Israel. He's, re, he's simply, he's including and is working with those whom he's chosen. 
So when you get to the Israel question in Romans 11, everybody seems to just sort of go off the rails and just start talking about you know, Israel and going to be a nation again and all this other stuff. It's like none of that is actually in the passage if you read it. Romans 11 finishes what was started in Romans 9, that the people who get saved are the people who are chosen, whether Jew or Gentile. Not all they who are of Israel are Israel. But a remnant will be saved. Then he adduces in chapter 10 all kinds of Old Testament passages about remnant. And even this passage here, 11, 1 through about you know, 20, he's talking about a remnant. And so when, when Romans 11 is in view, remember the context because it's really important. Remember there's only one olive tree. And then if you look around verse 35, you'll see the timing. Everybody wants to put it in the future. Three times you see now, now, now. It's a now thing. What Paul is talking about in Romans 11 is a now thing. It's the only terminology in the chapter that gives you chronology. But God has not rejected his people whom he has chosen. And Paul says, look at me, I'm one of them. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. And I kind of take the ASV setting because I've read the, the New American and the ESV and I read it and I read it and I'm just going, I don't even know what they're saying. It's really confusing how they word it. So, Maybe this confuses you, but it clarifies it for me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, sort of the western part of Turkey, or no, that would be eastern part of Turkey, to the elect who are sojourners, and your elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, according to the choosing, choosing beforehand, God having his purpose and his plan. Election is is woven together with contributing features. And God's sovereign choice is enacted ages ago with distinguishing love and affection, and that is the basis for choosing you. If you need a passage for that, I believe Deuteronomy chapter 8 will tell you where he says, I loved you because I loved you. I loved you and chose you because I loved you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 20, foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, Jesus, chosen before the foundation of the world, and this is used in the same way we see it in our passage. So those are the only places foreknowledge are used. They, most of the time, are being talking about sovereign grace and election. Well, Peter incorporates this perspective into his first, the first message ever preached in Pentecost because it's important for us to know. We should not be hesitant about embracing it, appropriating it, or enjoying it. We're talking about it. It's God's word. We get to talk about God's word, okay? Abe asked for confidence. How am I going to know that you're going to do this for me? How am I going to know? And God answered him. So if you're asking that question in your life, how do I know you're going to get me through this, what I'm going through? How do I know? Because you have been chosen by the determined plan and foreknowledge of God in which Jesus came and died for you and rose for you. Can God say anything else on the matter of assurance? Yeah, I'm glad when I have a good week because I feel really assured. Then God knocks me down the next week because he's saying, you're saved by grace, not my works. You'd think we'd learn that. I can, I can preach that doctrine for weeks. But just like you, I'm always drifting back over to, how am I doing this week? That's how I'm doing with God forever. No, it's not how you live. It's not how Steve should live. It's not how you should live. What more can God say? We should live and labor in the Lord from a platform of confidence in God. There might be some folks listening, who knows, maybe one or two people in the coming 100 years might get a hold of this message. And might be thinking, well, God can save others, but God can't save me. I am too guilty, too empty, too insignificant, too whatever. Why would God want to save me? 
He can't save me. I'm just too gone, too bad. Well, the answer to that is clear. An infinite God-man died for sinners on a cross. An infinite God-man. There is no sin too big, too deep, too prolonged, too dark, too iniquitous for Jesus Christ not to cleanse, not only from the guilt, but from the shame. No sin. There's only one sin that can keep you out of the kingdom of God, and if you're worried about that sin, then you haven't committed it. So... The Pharisees call it, it's a simple thing. Pharisees said Jesus is operating out of, out of the devil. Did the Pharisees cry to Jesus for salvation? No, they didn't care. They wanted to kill him. So everybody who's worried about committing that sin, you haven't committed it. And an infant God has created the heavens and the earth and you. And if you think, well, I'm too empty for God to fill up, well, get a telescope. And look as far as you can see, get on YouTube, see it, you know, about all the galaxies out there. <laughs> You're a little nothing. Best you might be is seven feet tall. God can fill a whole universe. He can fill you. Not a problem for God. Your spiritual predicament, your emptiness, it's not, not a problem for God. Well, what if he doesn't want me, someone might say. Well, we read in the Bible, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. Psalm 51. You got a broken spirit? You poor in spirit? Do you mourn? Do you want to be found by God? Do you want God to know you? Do you want to be some one of those ones he's foreknown from all eternity? Then come to him. God will not despise you. To this man will I look in Isaiah, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Are you those things, but thinking God doesn't want you if you're those things, you're exactly whom God wants. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Is that your life? You go home and you just go, I just don't even want to breathe anymore. It's just too hard to breathe. It's too hard to think. It's too hard to be anything. Come to Jesus, and he'll give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that our salvation and everything about it, your accomplishment of it, um, Lord, you working in our lives to bring us to Jesus, you preserving us in our lives through thick and thin, Lord, you preserving us together. That's all from you. And we know you're sovereign. We know you're almighty. doesn't mean we're going to get out of hard times. It just means you're going to keep us in it. And so, Lord, just pray you would preserve us in this knowledge and we would glory in this knowledge that you are the sovereign Lord God, that when you say something, you are going to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.